Are we ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Coop Jester, where we ask the big question, what should I do with my life? Enjoy. Hi, it's Dustin from Coop Jester. Today's episode features Manuel Bernischek, who has brought two brands at the pinnacle of luxury and quality to Vancouver, those being Fazioli Pianos and Stefano Ricci Luxurious Menswear. Manuel shares details from his early conversations with both Mr. Fazioli and Mr. Ricci, as well as the piece of advice he received prior to opening his very first store. So this interview is live, and if it sounds like we are chatting in a room made of hand-carved marble, that's because we actually are. A big thanks to Manuel for inviting me down to Stefano Ricci's storefront on Georgia Street. It's an incredible showpiece, not only for fashion, but design as well, and just a really fun place to do an interview. I had a great time. It was awesome. So here's Manuel. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Manuel, thank you for being on Coop Jester. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now I'm just looking at the surroundings that we're in right now. I'm sitting on a crocodile couch. It looks like a museum. Everything has been designed by hand. So I'm still giving you the chance to back out here. This may be a little bit off-brand for you as far as this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Where I wanted to start is what signaled that there was something in retail for you? I guess how it started is like I was learning Mandarin and then I had a friend that was selling pianos and he could also speak Mandarin. He was doing really well. He's a really cool guy. Everybody likes him. And then people would just flock to him to buy the pianos, you know? And then the owner of the store said, we need another guy that's like this and, you know, Caucasian guy that can speak Mandarin. That's how I started in, in the piano selling. But I didn't get into operating my own shop until much later. Well, it's actually a funny story. <laughs> it's a little bit, a few personal details, but like, my wife and I got married in 2006. The first year, there was a lot of adjustments. You know, there was a little bit of uh, bickering and fighting and this and that. And then we had this friend who lives in the States. He loves this, like, relationships and figuring them out and the dynamics of relationships and this and that. And he, he could tell that we're having a little bit of trouble or whatever. And so he said, let me come up and visit you guys. And, and he has his own private plane, right? So he flew in his own private plane, slept on our couch, and... He talked with us from 9 p.m. till 3 a.m. It's funny because I was convinced that he's going to come and tell my wife, Judy, that, you know, she's got to change something. Something's not right there. You know, I was just waiting for it. But no, I had, I, there was a few things that I had to change. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, so when I did that, immediately our relationship improved so much. It, it was at that point that we got into the honeymoon stage, like basically. And that was about eight months after we had gotten married. And I remember like the next day we were just having an ice cream and I told him that, you know, we've been hearing about this Fazioli piano. And originally I had told my boss at my store that they should bring this piano brand to Vancouver. They said that they, they could never do that because they don't represent this other brand that's very possessive about their yeah. space in a store. And they'll allow piano brands that are rated lower, but they won't have any piano brands that are rated higher. They won't allow it in the same store because they want to have the appearance of being at the, the king of the hill or the, yeah. at the top. And then so then I'm having ice cream with my friend and I said, you know, if somebody, somebody else, I was thinking, if somebody opened up a Fazioli store in Vancouver, I think they, they could do really good. 
And I kind of forgot that he's a wealthy person. <laughs> I'm just talking to a regular friend here. And then he said, you know, oh, just uh, write up a proposal and I'll get behind you financially. Oh, oh me? Like me do this? So then I, you know, I, th- I talked about it with my wife, Judy, and then we decided, yeah, well, why don't we try it? You know, and then so we, we wrote everything up and in the end, we didn't use any of his financial help, mm-hmm. uh, but I appreciate it because he had a higher compensation, like a high rate of interest. And so I worked hard to find people who would give us a lower interest. And then we, we opened up the shop. So. You brought two iconic world brands just in terms of the absolute quality to Vancouver being Fazziola Pianos and Stefano Ricci. In the early conversations, what did they have to believe and trust in you in order to be a steward of their brand in this city? Right. Well, I, w- I was worried about the same thing, like because I had never opened up a shop before. How am I going to convince Mr. Fazioli that his, you know, world-class brand that's now regarded as being the finest pianos in the world? How can I convince him that I should represent them? And he said that, like, so I telephoned the factory, and he said that he will only approve people that he's met in person. So I have to come and find a way to meet him. Judy and I flew to the States to meet him. And he, I said, okay, maybe we just meet for coffee or something. No, the, the factory told me, no, you have to book a conference room. I had prepared all this information, like every piano player that's coming to Vancouver in the next year and how I was going to contact them and offer them to, to play the piano and, uh, and how this was going to help his exposure and this and that. I remember saying this sentence where I said, like, cause he said, okay, you're my guy. I, I agree. I said, I promise you that everyone in Vancouver will know the name Fazioli. And he said, no, 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 it's Fazioli. So he corrected my pronunciation. It was kind of a funny moment. But yeah, he said, okay, you're my guy. And he originally estimated that we would be able to sell, given our size of population, two to three uh, of his pianos per year. Because they're a bit more, they're, back then they started at about 115,000. Now, you know, every year this price increases. Right. So it's 150000 now for the basic one. And he, he figured we would sell two or three a year, but that was in 2007. So in 2008, I think we sold 13 and we've sold over 150 since since starting. Yeah, that was the one thing in that, that series of videos that you sent me. I'll put a link to that because yeah. it, it's worth seeing just where the pianos are in the city. Right. And you really get a sense of his personality as well. Yeah. The one point that was I found quite interesting that he said was it was just about building our pianos. That is all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, so you've met him. You know him quite well. Yeah. So what does what does he mean when he says that? Well, he. So some people say they like this certain type of sound or that certain type of sound. He's not trying to match anyone's sound. He wants his sound. And his piano, he's not trying to compare to somebody else and say, I'm better than you, or he wants to make his piano and he wants to make the best pianos he possibly can. And he feels that his benefit in the marketplace is that he is at the top of the quality game. There's nobody else that can say that they're producing a better quality piano. So in every detail that you could possibly examine inside the piano, he is at the top. So when it comes to building the quality, how long does it take on average? Uh, for each to piano, cons- yeah, to construct a piano, yeah, it's about uh, two to three thousand man hours. So they have forty, maybe fifty people working in the factory. So this year they produced the most that they've ever produced in a year, and that's about one hundred and fifty units. In comparison, where like a huge giant like Yamaha will produce one hundred pianos a day, right? right. So this one hundred and fifty pianos a year because of their 
production and the recent real explosion in interest in Fazioli pianos, they've actually like this year produced the most that they've ever produced. And they've actually sold out all the way into now October of next year. So we've just reordered some pianos and we can't get them until October, November next year. So it's a huge success for them. And they don't want to change the production because if they add more people, then maybe their experience level will be lower and they don't want to have some poor result. So their only, their dedication is Mm -hmm. to to the highest quality. When they did like the little biography snippets from the professional musicians Mm -hmm. and they are in love with Fazioli pianos. Angela Hewitt, I've listened to a lot of her music since just in the last few days, she's been in the background for a lot of, a lot of what I've been doing. She's great. And then there was the Nick Cave biography. Right. And that was, that story was really funny because his fans actually tried to make, yeah, they tried to make this happen for him because he's like, I don't want to ask for a free piano, but his fans had no problem asking for it. Yeah. But when they talk, they're a tiny company, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. When they say a piano is a creative instrument mm-hmm. and it's a piece for an imagination, what what sets that apart? Like how does, for someone who's not initiated yeah. in music, like I know music and I appreciate it, but to know, understand the craftsmanship at that level that allows them to do these certain things, what, what do they feel when they... Well, <clears throat> first, how they achieve it is like they're insanely precise about many details that most factories won't have the time to to focus on so a couple examples that i give is like you know there's 88 keys right right each key has about 60 parts inside right so there's about 10,000 parts in general on, on a grand piano like one of the parts is a tiny little spring in each key so mm-hmm. there's 88 springs all the way along the, the action but the Fetzioli factory is so crazy about the details that they will check each spring for the, its springiness or its resistance because no two springs are exactly the same. And then they will organize the springs from least resistance to most resistant in order inside the action, like, which is crazy. No, like any manufacturer would just throw 88 mm-hmm. springs inside. Nobody would go through the time to check. How springy is this one? How much resistance am I getting? Poor quality pianos, one key will be easy to press and the next one will be a little bit harder to press. But by going through that step, they're making sure that the action is completely, completely even. And then on the sound side, the hammer, which is a felt hammer, it's like wood covered in felt, hits the the string. But then depending on how hard or how soft that hammer is, will change how hard or soft the the sound is. Uh, To get the right voice that each factory wants, this felt is going to be stabbed with with a needle to loosen the fibers, and that'll change the voice, right? In any factory, you'll see that they just stab the hammer with the the needles and then loosen it a bit and then listen to it. But the Fetzioli factory, they determine it. You can only stab like they look at it like a clock, like like, like the hammer head is, is like a clock. So they, they'll say like from 10 to 11 and from two to three, only this many exact times. And then from this exact angle, even they determine that. So the result is also on many pianos, there'll be a little bit of a difference of a voice in, in, in each note. Like one will be bright, one will be mm-hmm. softer, but this makes it so that it is absolutely the exact same voice throughout the entire piano. 
So the result is for the pianist that like for whoever's playing on it, it's extremely even. But the, the real benefit of the Fazioli uh, is that it's like playing a piano, but in ultra high definition. It lets you play. The first thing you discover is how powerful the piano is. It is more powerful than any other piano you would play on. It's unbelievable. Even the baby grand. If you're uh, on YouTube, uh, you can Google Daniel Chow Fazioli, F-A-Z-I-O-L-I. There's even a, a video of him playing a five foot two Fazioli and like, He's just like giving it it's all, you know, like he, because he's physically a very strong guy and he's just really pounding. Piano is just so powerful for a baby grand. It's like, it's it's unheard of. Even though it's such a powerful piano, the mo- the real beauty of these instruments is how light you can play and hear every single note clearly. So for a, a, a piano player, it's like you're giving them more colors to choose from for like an artist when they're wanting to paint a painting, you give them mm-hmm. more colors, they can, they have more freedom of expression, right? Like 4k, right? Like, so, right. Yeah. you know, like, you know, you can get a big TV and then maybe there's a slightly smaller TV that's way clear, but it's way more expensive, but you can see why, like the, the colors, the clarity is incomparable. This is a, probably a fairly basic question, but as pianos become, they get bigger in size. Mm-hmm. What does that do for the sound? So the the strings on the right-hand side are all very short strings, but the strings on the bass end on the left-hand side are get considerably longer. Then when you hit those bass notes, you can hear that real vibration, the depth of the the notes, right? So also the the soundboard area is increased quite a bit. So that's kind of like the, the loudspeaker of the piano. So a much larger grand, like a concert grand, because it has such a big area, it, ha- it has, you could almost say, more horsepower, so it can fill a full concert hall. In general, that's why you don't see baby grands on, on the concert hall stage, because right. they've got to fill this whole space, so they need a nine foot. Steinway makes a, a piano concert grand that's just under nine foot. Then a Bosendorfer makes one that w- that's nine foot six. It's called the Imperial Concert Grand. And then when Mr. Fazioli started uh, his productions a, f- a few years later, he wanted to make one even bigger. So it's 10 foot three. It's, uh, you know, just over three meters and it is the largest production piano in the world today. And there's two in Vancouver right now in private homes, in very large private homes. Right. (laughs) The other thing, uh, just in watching educational videos, there was a concert in a home in one of them Mm -hmm. and no one was playing the piano, but there was a vocalist in the background and they opened up the top of it and the strings were actually coming alive. Yeah. With, so how is that happening? You have to press the sustain pedal yeah. so that yeah. all the dampers go up and then that, that the uh, strings can ring free. And uh, there's a few things you could do. Like you could you can knock on the soundboard and then you'll hear the knock echoing through the strings. The other one is like, it's kind of cool because like the, the human voice is so powerful. When, right. Like when somebody screams into it is one thing, but when somebody sings a beautiful note, uh, into it and then they stop and then you can hear it it's kind of like echoing through the strings it's really cool uh, i wish i had a i used to have a piano here but we just moved it back to the other shop i could have shown you but I, and i don't know if you'd have the same effect on a very low quality mm-hmm. piano but it's kind of a cool thing to demonstrate on a, on a fetzioli for sure yeah. so now i have a little speculative question for you but it's it's in line with everything we've talked about why 
does the piano seem to be that magnet for people? Because I've had a fair bit of time to think about mm -hmm. what we were going to talk about, but it, it almost feels like it serves a purpose of being a hearth, mm. like where there's a, a central fire where people gather around. So what does a piano do that brings people together? Yeah, uh, I think music brings people together. Live music, uh, somebody who plays the piano. If, there's usually somebody in the family who plays the piano. And once the, the piano's going, usually everyone's gathering around. That's one of the things that I mention in when I'm trying to convince somebody to get a good quality piano is that it does become a centerpiece uh, for the home, right? It is visually a centerpiece, right? So you want, you know, something that's beautiful. But for the family, it does become something that, you know, at holiday time or whenever the family's all together, that they're somebody's playing the piano and then people are around singing or or joining in or whatever. Or we have one friend who got the piano just so that his wife could continue learning. And then uh, at, at holiday time, he invited all his family up there and he was so happy that it w really was the centerpiece, you know, and he, I think it's something that he didn't think of in advance, but then everybody was gathering around the piano and then just having, uh, you know, a great time. Prior to us pressing record, you were talking about your your grandmother. Yeah. How has she influenced what you do here in terms of what you appreciate in quality goods, so to speak, and, <laughs> and what you do now? So I, I don't know. I think sometimes these types of personalities will maybe skip a generation or I'm not sure, you know, like my grandma loved the finer things in life. And when she would go out, she'd always be dressed very elegantly. And even in the first thing in the morning, you know, like just to come down for breakfast, it was, she was always very very classy, always dressed up very nice. When we were kids, even before we were teenagers and she would invite us to, to Germany, she would take us to beautiful restaurants and beautiful hotels and want us to understand what made them special or what made them luxurious or what made the service so outstanding. I guess I got to appreciate those things. I don't know if my dad was too, too happy about that because he's the kind of person that's more careful about spending money. And then when we would go out to to eat on the weekends, it would be to McDonald's if he had a coupon or something like that. But it's not that uh, he didn't have any money. It's just how he chose to to spend. And, and for sure, if he hadn't chosen to live that way, maybe we wouldn't have the life that we that we do today and we wouldn't have the support that, we, that, that we've needed. And I'm not putting that down. It's just di different. Then it made us appreciate these finer things. Uh, my, my parents will rarely go to a fine dining restaurant, but my sister and I really <laughs> enjoy it, right? Because we were introduced uh, to that by my grandmother. So when you opened your first store, was that what you envisioned? Because usually we have a concept in our head of what it should be, like whether it's location, size. Right. And a lot of people get hung up on well, it's not perfect or it's not right, exact. Right. How did you get past that? Well, <laughs> some of the things that I didn't expect, like I remember one of my dad's old partners is one of the ones that started us out with an investment, right? And he told us, because I prepared these income statements of projections, this is how much we're going to sell and this is what our expenses are going to be. And I thought I figured out every detail. Like I've got this all the expenses figured out. I know what everything's going to cost me and I'm on top of it. And he said, whatever you think your expenses are, you should times them by 10. And then whatever you think your income is going to be, cut it in half. And I was like, no way, man. You don't know what you How do you know what you're talking about? I really spent time to figure yeah. out. I know what the phone is going to cost me. I know what that 
advertising is a guy, I know everything. And I was like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I'll take your advice and think about that. But there's no way he's right. But in the end, that's how it felt like. It felt like the expenses were many times more than what I thought they would be. And then you don't know about the income. You wish that everyone would line up and in one, <laughs> you know, in, in perfect intervals come and bring yeah. their money in and buy their pianos. But it's not like that. Sometimes you go, you know, three weeks and you don't sell anything. The expenses are still there. Or you still got to pay the rent. You know, <laughs> you still got to pay for those pianos. That could be, especially in the beginning, was very stressful. So the, I remember this one time where every month they calculate how much GST and PST you have to pay. And then it was due like on the 17th of the month. I knew that I had to come up with $13,000 or Oh, no, no, it was $11,000. And I had, you know, $3,000 left in the bank, right? And I was like, well, I have three weeks, you know. Of course, somebody's going to come in and buy something before then. But then, you know, a couple of weeks go by, nobody's opened the door. Nobody's even come in. And I'm like, well, now I'm starting to get worried, you know. And it was right down to the last day. And I'm like, please, God, help me. I need your help. <laughs> you know? And my wife was there that day. Judy was there. But she didn't know how things were that tight. Within an hour... A lady came in and bought an eight thousand uh, dollar grand piano, and this piano had a little problem. It had a little crack in the soundboard, which is a serious problem for a piano. <laughs> but I didn't want to be this guy that like, oh, just because I need it so badly, I'm going to sell this to you. Not tell, no. But I told her, I showed her where it was, and I you know played it for her and make sure she's comfortable and everything. She's like, yeah, that's no problem. And some people will pay the money or pay a deposit and then pay the the whole amount later, whatever. Mm-hmm. But she paid the entire thing. Right there. And then, then when, when she walked out the door, I went to the back and I just broke down crying, like, because it was the exact amount yeah. I needed, you know. Now it just seems like tiny potatoes. As our scale has increased, now, like, the amount of money that we need is maybe 10 times as much. And we have a few weeks to come up with it. We don't know how it's going to happen, but eventually people come in, they mm-hmm. buy pianos, and we reach the amounts that we need. So, but was that the part of business that you were completely unprepared for? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, yeah. But we, we've enjoyed every step of the way. Like mm-hmm. in the beginning, Judy and I were just watching the store seven days a week, right. uh, just ourselves, you know, and now we have a lovely team. We have 25 some odd teachers. We have uh, salespeople, technicians, and uh, administrators, uh, accountants, managers. And then moving from pianos to luxurious menswear. Right. <laughs> what is the story with Stefano Ricci? Well, it, it's funny because it actually all goes back to that first year when we started uh, with, the, with the piano shop. So Mr. Fazioli said that he wants all his dealers to come and tour the factory. Judy had never been to Italy. And I thought, okay, I'll bring Judy to Italy. We'll go through the factory. And since it was her first time, I thought we would start in Rome and then take the, the train up to Mr. Fazioli's factory. And when we were in Rome... I remember going down in the hotel. We stayed in this fancy hotel, right? <laughs> and in the lobby, they had this display case and it had Stefano Ricci ties and shirts and silk shirts and all that. Because I love fancy ties. And like for a salesman that can't afford much, I would always try and impress people with my tie. And then maybe they won't notice the you know, inexpensive suit, <laughs> right? So, and that, that was my thinking all, all the yeah. way along ever since I was like 18, you know, I'd get some kind of tie that would attract people's attention and then maybe they would, you know, mm-hmm. not worry about the rest. And I remember seeing this tie, like it really blew me away and it was beyond anything that I had ever seen. And I wanted to make sure, where is this made? I want to, 
you know, make sure is this like a fake brand, an Italian name, but all over it says made in, you know, some yeah. part of Asia or something. Yeah. And it said made in Italy. And I'm like, Judy, we got to go straight. And this was like first year of marriage, right? When we mm-hmm. opened the shop, I went directly to that shop and I bought a tie and it was very costly, right? But I, I expected it. You want something high quality made in Italy, it's going to cost Right, right, and that's what I want. That's what I like, you know. So, and Judy would make fun of me because she would say like the the ties that I would buy from them are more expensive than my whole suit. But for me, it was my my tool, my you know my conversation piece. Mm-hmm. People see the ties that I wear, and they they it always get them talking, you know. <laughs> but it's amazing with a piece of a piece of clothing if it feels good on. It's amazing what effect that yeah, has on totally, you. Totally, totally. And Matteo toured me around the store before we got talking and he was showing me the ties which are inlaid with Swarovski crystal. That's right. Yeah. They're beautiful. Well, there's some that are completely covered in Swarovski crystals. There's some that just have some Swarovski details. And then there's some that are pleated like the one I'm wearing here. These are all little pleats going down it. There are some that are pleated patchwork, uh, which are little patches of pleats going in different directions, which is really special to Stefano mm-hmm. Ricci. And I love about this brand that it's so different that nobody else is making stuff like that. But I, I want everyone to know also, you know, e- even though that there are these outrageous items that are very costly, most people will come here for t-shirts and jeans, mm. and the regular ties. Those are in a much more acceptable price range. They're still expensive uh, for what they are because you can get a pair of jeans anywhere, you know, just for a few dollars. But these are very special materials. And of course, made by hand in Italy. And Mr. Ricci hopes that one day the Italian government or, or finds a way to distinguish made in Italy from truly made in Italy brands because many brands say that they're made in Italy, but they'll most of the work will be done in another country. For example, a shirt will be mostly made somewhere else and then it's sent to Italy and they put on the collar and now it's made in Italy. Right. But Mr. Ricci wants people to know that this is absolutely truly made by hand in Italy in the truest sense of the word. If you ever get a factory tour, you'll see that this is real people with thread and needle, yeah. you know, with the hand tools and they're making it. It's almost like that designation on wine regions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But they, they should have something that's like truly made by hand in Italy. And then this would be one of the only brands that would qualify to say that, you know. They convey an image. They're either like in an alpine environment or very, they're very masculine mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. activities, or mm-hmm. there's the, it's a father and son engineering an old diesel train. Right, right. And the thing that I really appreciated about this was that they, they had these guys wearing, dressed in fine clothes or whether they're on a ski mountain, they're in full ready to go ski garb. And you know, they're going to be the best. There's just this quality that they are going to be able to do whatever the activity is. But instead, they choose to just hang out with their (laughs) eagle on their arm. It is is so well done. He even is unapologetically, yes, our clothes are high quality. I appreciate that. Yes. I think that part is really an extension of Mr. Ricci's personality because that is who he is. He's almost like someone taken out of the 1700s or something mm. like that because he he loves nature. And he, I mean, his home is on a beautiful acreage and lots of forest. Yeah, when you see who he is, that is really him. So that's why we see. And then, then the, the eagle is the, the symbol of the brand, the eagle head. And it's actually extremely recognized in like in China. This is yeah. like the eagle head 
belt is the, the symbol for successful men in, in China. So <laughs> very iconic and striking. Did you ever see the show Devil Wears Prada? Yes, a long time ago. So I don't remember the total, yeah. all the details, but yeah. There's an interesting scene with Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep. Anne Hathaway's character is this young intern and she comes in and says, what's basically, what's the big deal about thinking about this shade of blue? Mm. And Meryl Streep, without even looking up and with a lot of disdain in her voice, says something to the effect of that blue that you're wearing right now comes from this fashion show <laughs> 10 years before. Yeah. That's why blue is such a big deal. Yeah. But I'm wondering why, when you get into luxury brands, why do they do color so well? You could have two garishly orange cars, mm. like you could say have a Lamborghini on one side and you have a Volkswagen Golf on the other, both similar. Right. Well, you could but tell it, that. There's, there are too many people making decisions about the color or mm. is there too much gloss, but there's just, they do color so well. Right, right. You know, yeah. Well, Mr. Ricci is all about the the fabrics. You know, yeah. he wants he wants to find the best possible fabric, and he'll go in and feel the fabrics. And it has, and that's something special about the brand. Like for even like the dress shirts, they use a minimum two hundred thread count for the dress shirts. And every time I put one on, I'm like, oh man, that feels so good. <laughs> in the beginning, I was surprised. Like, wow, they're making jogging suits out of cashmere. And then I tried one for myself. It's like this thing is giving me a hug all the time. I love it. You get what you pay for, I guess. <laughs> is it the symbolic ownership of a good that makes it desirable? It's like the symbol of wealth and quality, inherently the costs associated with it, or the difficulty it takes to acquire something? Uh, maybe it's a combination. Like uh, something, I, I like something that you said before. It's also how it makes you feel when you wear it. Like sometimes... It's a style that maybe somebody says, oh, this isn't right one for you or, you know, but if it makes you feel good wearing it, you know, like, I think that's a, a big part of it. You mm -hmm. know, like uh, sometimes my wife says, oh, you shouldn't wear those color pants like the, the ones I'm wearing now. She's always says, these, these pants are for somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes. That's not you. I don't know. I really like them, so I'll still wear them. That's a great cut. Yeah, I know. That's a good yeah, pair of pants. So not, not everybody agrees. But if it, if it, I think if it makes you feel good, that's part of the purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, we go to events and places where we don't know people, and this helps take away the nerves. You feel a confidence about what you're, what you're wearing. We also tend to hide away our nice things. Mm -hmm. We, whether it's the good silver for dinner or right. we, we splurge on a pair of boots but we only wear them on certain occasions yeah, yeah. and then when we go to wear them then we realize that they don't fit very well right. or yeah. that they're a little bit out of style and yeah. you need to go do this but if you wore them every day yeah they yeah. just make you feel good yeah yeah why not yeah yeah, yeah i've been trying to get out of that too because I would get these things from Stefano Ricci and I would love them so much. I'd like to treasure them and never wear it. But then that kind of defeats the purpose. Like one of these uh, jogging suits that I have, it's just so lovely, but I really wanted to take care of it. So I never ended up wearing it. And I'm like, oh, what's the purpose? No, you should wear it. And yes, mm -hmm. you know, something might happen, but you should still wear it. If something happens and you can fix it, if you snagged it on something. Yeah. Or a friend of mine gifted me a very nice t-shirt once upon a time. And I knew what it was worth. There was that, I, can't, I cannot wear this. Right. I, I, don't, I don't want to wreck it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I remember something a friend of mine told me. He owned a bike shop. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about getting a winter bike mm -hmm. just so it you know, wouldn't mess up the gearing and you know, it would be easier. But he's like, the bike is meant to be ridden. 
Like right. you are taking away its essence if you don't ride it. Yeah. And so I've carried that thought with mm-hmm. me a lot mm-hmm. of times. Anyway, this shirt has been worn everywhere awesome. and taken on many journeys. I've worked out in it. It feels so good. I'm actually wearing it right now. But <laughs> awesome. yeah, a lot of what you're saying is that enjoy it and, should find, be and find stuff that yeah. means something to you or makes yeah. you feel good. And enjoy it instead of just leaving it in the closet. <laughs> yeah. Being a tailor has been a long respected profession. Like they fit royalty mm. all through the ages, mm. but it seems out of place with our time of expediency and efficiency and getting things done. So why should we keep the tailor? This is something I discovered more after my involvement with uh, Stefano Ricci, and it's something that they do extremely well. They have some of the best master tailors in the world. So to reach that master level, it's usually people who have been doing it since they were children and it's passed down from another generation. And to be called a master, they have to pass all sorts of crazy tests, like mm. like sew a, a buttonhole with a blindfold on it. So they're really, really pro. So the master tailors that work at, at Stefano Ricci, I, I forget how many they have in total. But then when we have an event here, they'll send one out and the result is always fantastic. Like these people are really good at what they do. Like they like, and then just one try and it's perfectly fitted to the person's body, you know? And I find the same thing, like I can take off the rack, but then when I have a suit made for myself, it is made for me. And you can tell this suit was made for me. There's not something odd about it, something sticking out or anything. It is really my suit. So Stefano Ricci for the suits, they basically, for the fabrics, they start where most of the brands will leave off. Most of the brands will go up to a certain level for fabrics, but Stefano Ricci basically starts at that level and carries on to almost infinity not really but yeah like uh they can go up to like fifty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars for a suit but in general they're just above ten thousand dollars so it's not outrageously more than what uh, many of the other high-end brands do Mm -hmm. it's just i think many high-end brands will be like between six and nine or six and ten thousand so ours are just above ten thousand when you come here and take a tour our team likes to show some of these details that you cannot find in other suits, like areas where you can see that it is truly stitched by hand and not by machine. That's incredible. So, so for somebody who wants like truly bespoke or truly mm-hmm. made by hand, th- this is it. This is the, the place. And so we invite people to come and take tours. Like So I know that the place really looks impressive and maybe some people might shy away from going in because they feel, oh, I need like a thousand dollars just to walk through the door. But it's we're really not like that. We really want to welcome everyone to come and, and discover the brand. Even if they don't ever plan mm-hmm. on getting something, we want them to know who is the maker of the top men's clothing in the world. So what benefit does luxury provide for a society other than the basic argument that there's people that can buy it or people who can afford it? But what, what benefit does it bring? Well, I, I think you're uh, by choosing like quality, either quality pianos or quality clothing, you're supporting an art, really. Like you're supporting the art of fine piano making, you know, which is really reduced mm. in this world to just a few brands now, right? Like it used to be hundreds of brands producing the top quality pianos. Now, most of the pianos are economy pianos and very few are at that top tier in the world. And same with Stefano Ricci, you're supporting the art of making these fine garments. We have children that hang out together Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. But let's say looking forward, we fast forward to when 
they're thinking about colleges and universities or even careers, say they were to apprentice either as a piano builder or as a tailor, other than the acquisition of a skill, what advantage or insight do you think that would have for them compared to everyone else? Well, uh, I think that the market really only promotes those being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or something like that, but but puts very little emphasis on a skill or a trait. Right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants their kid to be a doctor, or but the market is half of that and half mm-hmm. trades, but there's no emphasis put on the trades. And then, I mean, and I could be wrong, but I feel like the the people who take up trades are actually doing quite well because yeah. because there's fewer people that do it, and they're in high demand, mm-hmm. you know, and then. These are people that like maybe do a more humble job, earn as much or more than, and have a much easier time than some of the ones that are pursuing so, so much of a higher education. But what if they were even, say they went the doctor, lawyer, professional route, but they had this experience behind them? I guess where I was trying to go with that is I was listening to this life coach talk and she was offered a job by Goldman Sachs because she did comedy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if that is on, like, what would, I'm just saying, what, what appreciation for, I guess, humanity or attention to detail with that, how would that benefit the work that they do? Yeah, for sure. Well, I don't know. I think it's always uh, super beneficial to have some kind of skill like that, right? I'm sure there are studies to show that it makes the brain work better or makes you make more connections in your brain because you, you understand those types of skills. So I think it's something that would always, always benefit you. I feel like I will encourage my daughter to choose that sort of way instead of the, the lawyer, engineer, mm-hmm. doctor sort of way. That's my feeling. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, I agree with you because there's something about tactile, like that working with your hands or doing something physical that just connects you to the work. Right. In a way that being online doesn't necessarily Right, right. Do. Totally. Yeah. Right. Okay. Two more. I know I'm looking at the time here. No problem. No problem. What is it about Italian brands? And I've always been fascinated with this, but there is always something that you can tell is seems to come from Italy, whether it's the high-end cars or fashion or pianos, or even so many, like my, my world is the biking world and the cycling world and the brand Campagnolo always comes up and, Mm. and it seems to just work better or feel better or look better. But what is it? What do they do? There's something there uh, is like that, a style there, there beyond. Is that, that, there's that it thing yeah, that yeah. just comes from. I don't know. Like uh, I think I there's a there's a joke that there's either Italians or people who want to be Italians, and I think probably you and I are <laughs> falling into that category. <laughs> are we you the know. latter category? Yeah, I yeah. think so. You know, yeah. for some reason, even food and wine and everything, they do very well. They enjoy they enjoy life, and and I love all things Italian. Like I. There's this one brand of chocolate that I really love, and I'm hoping to find a way to bring it here in a better way. But it's called Caffarel, and uh, Caffarel is made in uh, Torino, Italy. It was, I think, founded in 1864, and basically it was like they invented a different way to make chocolate at a time where there was a shortage of cocoa in the Mm. world. And so they made chocolate from hazelnuts. And uh, the taste is almost like Nutella, but in a, in a chocolate form. So it is extremely addictive <laughs> and I really love it. Of course, it had to be Italian, turns out, right? So, And then the last one, and I ask a version of this to everyone, but if there is 
a piano performance on a fazioli that stirs up every emotion in you that think everyone should listen to, mm-hmm. what would that be? Well, recently, I would say um, if you search the, the winner of the Chopin competition this year, just a few months ago, um, his finale, his final performance as part of the competition was tremendous, you know, and it's got millions of views now in the okay. last few weeks. That's somebody who performed the, the entire competition on Fazioli pianos. Yeah, the final piece is fantastic and just the energy. And you can see it in the YouTube video, like the energy of that that whole performance. It's, it's just perfection, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, but I do have a few favorite pieces that I like that I like to listen to. And every time they just, they're so moving or inspiring. Do you have them off the top of your head or? Uh, I like that. Uh, there's one piano piece, but I don't know if it was recorded on a Fazioli, but it sure sounds very nice. And uh, it's uh, Christian Zimmerman's performance of Totentanz. I really love it. And the only person that I thought did it better was uh, Louis Lorty. Louis Lorty is a Canadian pianist who is also a huge fan of Fazioli. He has three Fazioli's himself, and he performed it in Vancouver with the VSO, and it was beyond any version that I had ever heard of, and it was just fantastic. And, of course, he performed on a Fazioli, and I wish somebody would have recorded it because it was tremendous, you know. So you have have to look it up, Totentons. It's a very exciting piece. I'll send you the link later. This has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I must say, I was always looking at my glass of water there and thinking that there should be a coaster underneath. I was having yeah. a little bit of anxiety the yeah. whole time. We were talking, like, yeah. Oh, there should, there's going to be a rain. Oh, my goodness. No, no, it's okay. Um, All good. But, it's high polish, so it should be fine. But thank you so much. I really liked digging into your world and getting to know you a bit better. So Yeah, thank thanks. you so much. Thanks yeah. for thinking of me to, to come and interview me. and. Of course, we welcome anyone out there to come and visit and take a tour. And uh, and it's a whole other world. It, it's worth coming to see this place. Well, thanks, Manuel. Okay. Enjoy you. your day. Okay.